0: Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started paddling the blue. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Today I'm joined by Andy Cochran, Luke Walker, and Wyatt Roscoe. And in this episode, we're gonna explore a region that many have crossed in lesser craft. Andy, Luke, and Wyatt's crossing of the Straits of Florida from Havana to Key West is quite a journey, and it was intended to bring light to the human cost of closed borders. So we're going to talk about their trip, what they learned along the way in advance of the trip, we'll talk nerdy spreadsheets, training, and number two. So enjoy today's episode with Andy,
1: Wyatt, and Luke.
0: Andy, Luke, and Wyatt, thank you very much for joining me today. How are you guys?
1: We're good. Thanks, John. Excellent. Glad to be here.
0: Fantastic. Hey, uh, Andy, I'm going to ask you a question first. So where did the idea for the trip come from?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, The idea for what we usually call the, the Cuba paddle started through friends and also through the outdoor industry. There's a company called Cotopaxi based in Salt Lake, who I've known for a while. And they did a similar trip a few years before us with tandem kayaks. I think there was five. And I believe one of the boats was able to get across the straits. And just talking with Davis, the CEO and founder, and learning from him why they did it and thinking about what we could do to like continue to raise awareness for the struggle that a lot of refugees have had crossing the strait and being turned away because it's a closed border. So how did you go about making that awareness? Well, a lot of it was through social media, and then we also created a film on our trip interviewing a number of refugee families in and around the Miami area, and then capturing us on the paddle to kind of juxtapose our experience with some of their stories of crossing the straits and shared that online through platforms like Outside Online. So I know that this
0: trip is a lot more more than just about three guys crossing the straits. Um, Wyatt, tell us a little bit more about what that message was.
2: Yeah, so there's a lot of 100-mile stretches in the ocean that we could have chosen. Um, This is a pretty iconic one that we thought would have more meaning and allow us to Connect with more people and kind of tell a story of, you know, what we were doing with some of the best gear on the market, and months and months of training, and how difficult it is to get from Cuba to the United States, and then also, you know, tell the story of people who have done it on, you know, inner tubes and self-made rafts, and just try and understand and be able to empathize the difficulty and the willingness to take that risk to get across this you know 90 to 100 mile stretch of ocean and it and it worked i mean it, it was pretty mind-blowing and humbling to be out in the middle of the ocean you know after training for a long time and knowing your capabilities how far the other side was and to try and picture the other people the, the hundreds of you know, thousands and thousands of people that have done this with you know very very little was I, I, I myself felt like we succeeded in being able to just have a very small grasp of what it was like uh, and the desperation needed to make you want to cross, you know, open ocean with that
0: So, what how did you go about getting their stories?
2: We reached out to different networks and, you know, our circles to see if we had uh, any connections that could be made. We planted some seeds and reached out to people in Cuba that we knew. And actually, some some strange connections happened to enable some unbelievable stories. I had, you know, a, a past relationship who remembered going into a dry cleaning store here in Atlanta, and they heard about the story what we were doing and shared that the one of the founders of the dry cleaner had made the trip, and so I circled back and went up there and, and did a long interview with him, that you know made me cry and, and led to some tears on his end remembering his story. You know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do it for a million dollars again. They were, they were stuck halfway kind of burning in the sun. One person was hallucinating. So essentially we just put feelers out to find the right people and some amazing stories came out of it.
0: Yeah. It must've been fascinating to to get their firsthand perspective of uh, people coming across.
2: It was especially cause this, this interview actually happened after we had done it. And so being able to, Understand how far it really is and to hear what their boat was made out of and to hear the fear that they had 30, I believe 30 years after the trip was was really humbling
0: Yeah, you're doing this in in high-tech plastic kayaks with all the all the right gear and they're coming across in inner tubes and, and plywood
2: Yeah, this boat was specifically made from foam and plywood and they stashed it off the coast And pretend to be fishermen. Pretended to be fishermen and left their buoy light where where the guards were watching in the ocean, floating, and paddled out past in the middle
1: of the night where the guards could see them.
0: Wow. So, so Andy, I understand that you're the planner. Tell us a little bit about how you planned the logistics of this trip.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, I'd start by saying I'm definitely didn't do it all myself. I was the initial instigator of the trip, but. We did a pretty good job divvying up a lot of the responsibilities between the three of us and among a few others that came along as crew. So we started kind of by finding the big buckets of what we would need to plan, everything from how to get the boats to Cuba, what boats would we be using, um, building a training plan, what food do we want, gear we're using, who would be on the crew. So we divvied that up. And then we just, you know, once it's in smaller piecemeal sections, it's easier to kind of attack and start figuring it out. Some of it took more time than others. And some of it was constrained with like, we all have full-time jobs, you know, we all have stuff going on. So there's time and money limitations, but just did our best with what we could to get things lined up pretty far in advance. I mean, we started training four or five months out and putting in real time, you know, on the water to, to get a solid base for this. So, that was kind of the strategy of the logistics was was break it up and share responsibility between the three of us.
0: So from the point where the uh, the trip was conceived to the point where it actually happened, how much time elapsed there?
1: It's a bit of a complex question because it's actually the second time we've done the trip. So there's there's a initial instigation conversations with Cotopaxi where I kind of say like, oh, like I think that's, you know, we should try this, that first trip. And then it's a full year again waiting for the right season to do it. From the moment when we really said we're going to try again to being in Cuba, I think the mo- the moment I remember is white and I were paddling different trip, whitewater trip in Mexico and just having a really good time in this canyon and we were like kind of looked at each other and we were like we knew we, we had to go back and that was white when was that early November. So it was 6 months, I guess, 6 or 7 months between that and and being in Cuba in late May.
0: So uh, I'm going to switch to Wyatt then for a, a second here. So Wyatt, this is your second attempt. Tell us what happened with the first attempt.
2: I think, you know, you, you learn from every, every attempt, and, and I was in a completely different mind state as far as what it was going to take on the second attempt, and I think it's hard not to be. Um, the crew had a lot better dynamics on the second trip you know, as, as far as commitment, and, you know, I think with a lot of people talk about with these endurance things, Once it's decided that you're going to do it, it it is much more likely that it's actually going to get done. And I think the first trip we were hopeful and figuring things out, but we weren't steadfast of, I'm going to paddle until I tip over. And I think that's kind of how I tried to go into both paddles, but the first one, it seemed, you know, there was some sickness involved in the, right before we left on the paddle and during the paddle, but it was, it was a completely different mindset the three of us were really in sync. A lot of us have paddled around the world together. Luke and I grew up together and there was just a lot of stuff we didn't have to, to talk about. And so, you know, on the first trip, we, the team kind of slowly dwindled out and, and called it quits uh, due to sickness and other kind of, and other reasons. And so it, it, there was there was a moment there where, where I was paddling by myself and it felt a lot harder. I mean, you could, it, it is a complete psychological game that you're playing with because no no one paddle stroke is that difficult but the mindset of going from I'm going to do this to I don't know if I can do this happens between a single paddle stroke and and I remember that that moment on the first trip and so training for the second trip this was a big kind of mind game mentality that I was working working around of this is done paddle until can't or I tip over or it's unsafe but I'm going to, I'm going to go until I see lights and then, you know, I'm not going to stop until, until we get there. And so it, it trained me how to, it trained me to be a better endurance athlete, I think.
0: So Andy, are there any learnings from that first time uh, in the first trip that you were able to apply to the second trip?
1: Oh yeah. There's tons of learnings. I mean, everything from um, the type of boats we wanted to use, the paddles, the gear, a, a really big one was nutrition and, how we ate and what we ate and the cadence of eating it. I mean, we, we worked with a uh, nutrition expert and, and professional ultra runner kind of took her plan for like a hundred mile races and applied that to what we were doing. Cause it's roughly the same amount of time where you're just continually going. And just like having the right crew, the, tr- the preparation and training going in, we started way earlier and thought about uh, balancing strength and endurance. And, and then kind of the mental side is like, it's, your body's gonna break down, it's hot and humid, and it's a pretty big swell. And it's like, you get to that spot where it's, it's mind over matter. And I think we learned a lot from that first one of how to manage that and how to support each other. And like Wyatt said, the three of us have a ton of trust. We've been paddling together for a long time and Luke wasn't part of the first trip and having him there is kind of the solid foundation. And at times we didn't even need to talk. We just kind of We just kind of know what we're doing in boats together. And that takes so much stress off you, mentally, and you can just focus on, you know, continuing to push forward. So, yeah, I mean, the first one, the first attempt was hard to fail, but instrumental in helping us uh, eventually succeed and in, in paddle across the straits.
0: What were the sticking points on that first trip that uh, caused it to not go right?
1: Uh, yeah, the f- food, lack of preparation. We had a pretty big storm and a pretty stiff headwind. You know, we just like. Didn't the pacing was a, a big debate, both the first and second time of how fast out of the gate, you mean, you want to be slow, but you don't want to feel like you're, you know, like just not going anywhere either. So there's kind of a sweet spot. I think there wasn't one critical fail. It, it was more just in aggregate, um, just felt like we were fighting a losing battle and eventually mentally wore down. And there was four of us and there wasn't as much trust and I think that put a lot of strain on like when one person was feeling bad, it, you know, having that you can really pick someone up and it goes back and forth. And it, that wasn't as fluid the first time. So, yeah, we we learned a ton. Yeah, yeah
0: the important thing is, is that you learn those things, were are able to apply those the second time and, uh, and make it successful the second time. So that's great. Um, were there any special regulatory requirements that you had to deal with in paddling from Cuba to the U.S.?
1: Yes and no. So we found there's one kind of major loophole that we worked with for this trip. So the biggest, the biggest challenge is bringing stuff to Cuba. You know, there's very strict imports and that's why, for example, they don't have a lot of new cars and stuff like that. So what we did, we we both wanted a support boat, but we decided logistically sailing from Key West to Cuba before the trip to start gave us this huge opportunity of we could just bring the kayaks on the boat. We could bring all of our food prepackaged from the States. Didn't have to worry about buying anything. Like it was just controlling variables. Um, and it also, when you get into the port, obviously you go through customs. But if we leave all that stuff on the boat, that allowed us to bring essentially what we wanted. So as long as we didn't bring it into Cuba or like, you know, on shore, that that kind of got us through a lot of the hurdles that we, we would have had if we flew.
0: That's an interesting um,
1: loophole. Yeah. Yeah. It worked <laughs> great for us. Heading back was the same. It was just checking into customs. No major issue. I think a big part of it is, I mean, we're all U.S. citizens. So people, they were pretty much just like, welcome back. Go, you know, move along, sir. That that was uh, actually surprisingly easy. There was very quick pass through.
0: Um, how did you pick the launch and landing points?
1: We did a bit of consultation with uh, the captain of our support boat, Captain Bob. We knew we were just going to launch from the harbor in Cuba. Um, it's a bit further. The paddle is from there. Um, because that Cuba is further west, or Havana, sorry, is further west in Cuba. So we're adding a few miles, um, and then we were just going to go back to Key West, which is the southernmost real port in in Florida.
0: So you talk about the boat, um, Luke. It was an unsupported trip, but tell us a little bit about that. How you you, know, you had a support boat? So tell us a little bit more about that.
3: So the Sun Lover provided us a direction to paddle and was there in case of an emergency for safety. But we carried all of our own gear and food and water with us and worked together to support each other as needed. And at points during the paddle, the wind would actually push the sun lever faster than we could paddle. And would occasionally kind of have to turn around to motor back to us. But from our vantage point in our boats, We had an easy time seeing the boat and following it just due to its size
0: all right so you didn't have to use the boat it was just there if you needed to use it
3: exactly and you know really for safety if one of us had uh, gotten hurt or something came up and needed to get back on the boat we uh, would have used it but uh, we didn't end up needing it for anything
0: so another question for you then, Wyoming's, you know, somebody mentioned uh, skills earlier and how you developed your skills. You know, Wyoming's not really a sea kayaking hotspot. Um, how did you develop your skills for the trip?
3: So I grew up in Jackson canoeing and camping with my family and really started my kayaking journey when I was around 15 and it started just on local rivers and lakes and expanded to whitewater kind of all around the U S uh, before this trip, I hadn't done any long flatwater paddling, but from all the whitewater paddling I had done on trips down the grand Canyon and on local rivers, I was very comfortable in a boat and around the water. And I think that whitewater experience definitely helped when we had some bigger waves and windy conditions.
0: All right. Um, Wyatt and Andy, how about you? How did you you prepare your skills for the trip?
1: Um, So I grew up in a different paddling mecca in northern Minnesota, near the Boundary Waters. Grew up in a canoe more than a kayak. I spent a few years working for a kayak company when I lived in San Francisco. So I would say that's really where I jumped from, like a river and lakes paddler, you know, used to guide uh, whitewater trips. So I think all three of us actually um, much prefer rivers. But for this, you know, obviously, we knew that it was going to be a lot of flat water. I think we'll talk about this. But it was we had a pretty big tropical depression and a storm that we had to deal with. So, so like Luke was saying, it was super advantageous to be comfortable in in big waves. But for me, I just spent a lot of time in the boat on the ocean. Um, I had already done some of that when I lived in the bay and some sea kayaking and surfing with a good friend who was a kayak surfer. But this was just like trying to spend a lot of time on the ocean and and getting used to currents and waves. And, you know, you always feel like you can do more, but I felt like going in, we were very prepared and had definitely had the skills. Like one of the concerns was not like the kayaking is going to be too technical. It it, it was not. And we knew it wouldn't be above our pay grade. It was more about the endurance and the nutrition and the heat, not the paddling skill.
0: Yeah. All right. Um, So how did you guys, make sure that your skills as a team were solid so
3: i can answer that one i grew up with wyatt in jackson and had spent uh, a lot of time kayaking and rafting and camping and just going on uh adventures with wyatt and we'd done a handful of different trips one of them we carried pack rafts up and over Mount Whitney and floated out the Kern. And so we were very comfortable paddling together. And then before the trip, Andy was actually living in Seattle and I met up with him and we paddled around and hit it off and based on his and Wyatt's paddling experience and trips they'd been on together, we all felt very comfortable as a team.
0: So, Andy, um, how did you handle food on the trip?
1: Yeah, so food was, you know, we've talked about it a few times, it was a big part of kind of the the scheming for this trip. We worked with a good friend of mine. Uh, her name is Magda Boulay. She's um, the head of R&D and innovation at Goo Energy Labs, the nutrition company that's mostly running focused. She's also a pro runner herself, and we have spent a lot of time on the trails together. So I went to her and just asked, like, could you help design a food plan for this paddle? And she she was super excited about it and was super supportive and gave us a lot of insights on what we should and shouldn't be eating and how often um, we should be thinking about food. The simplest way to explain it, and she would joke and say, you're going to eat like a 12-year-old when you're paddling. So we kind of had this plan of like, obviously, building strength and training. And then a few days beforehand preparing your body, and then in the paddle, what are you doing? But during the paddle, it's it's a lot of sugars and super processed foods. And the reason for that is you don't want your body to spend energy digesting stuff. You get really tired. It takes energy that you could be using just to paddle. So it was you know, a lot of gels and soup waffles and sandwiches with very little peanut butter and jelly and, and stuff like that. I think you know even even with a great plan and and preparation just like the magnitude of what we were trying to do by the end all three of us were struggling to eat so we got enough in to to get us there but certainly like we were we were hurt hurting by the end i think you know luke can tell the story but he was puking at least once an hour every hour starting at midnight on just cuz he couldn't couldn't hold food down you know when it's 80 85 degrees and nearly 100% humidity and you're trying to just work out for 27 hours straight, your body at some point is just like, nope, don't want that.
0: So Luke, I'm hearing, I'm hearing a good story there.
3: Yeah. So at about (laughs) around midnight, I started feeling pretty sick and I think it was kind of my body just saying, you know, you've been going nonstop for a long time and I can't process any more food. And I think part of it was I tried to eat and drink too much. Too quickly and i started puking and i puked like kind of on the hour for the next about 10 hours until it was mid-morning then i didn't really have anything left and one of the things i wish i had personally done to prepare for the trip beforehand had just been basically staying up for 27 hours and eating the food that we were going to eat to see how my body handled it and reacted. And that was something that I didn't do.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a big piece is to experiment with it ahead of time and and don't use that particular day as your experiment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you learn from that. Uh, Andy, tell us a little bit about the sketchiest moment of the trip.
1: Yeah, sure. There's probably a few that come to mind. One kind of stands out. I mean, we, to set the scene, we were waiting in Havana for longer than expected. We we had, you know, sailed across in the Sun Lover, the support boat, rented an Airbnb, and the plan was to wait for a good weather window. This tropical depression, Alberto, rolls in. It's late May, so this is before it's supposed to be big peak season. And it just wouldn't leave the Gulf. It sat there and sat there. So every day we're checking the weather. We're like, you know, we knew we had needed to give... Um, the Commodore of the port in Havana and kind of customs, at least I think it was a 48 hour notice of when we were going to leave. So we ended up staying in Havana for nine days, just kind of in purgatory, hoping, checking the swell, checking the wind direction, hoping the weather would improve. And eventually it did, but not um, as much as we wanted. And we got to the very end and we're like, okay, we're, we're going for it. (laughs) And um, took off think we started paddling around seven in the morning and a few hours later the swell was already 10 or 12 feet you know it's not it's not breaking but it definitely was like enough to keep your head on a swivel and kind of consume your mind it wasn't just like tune the world out and just paddle north it was very much like you had to be thinking and paddling at the same time and so that becomes an issue at night when you know obviously you can't see as much and as luke mentioned earlier the support boat would sometimes get ahead of us and then it would circle back. And the sketchiest moment for me, and I, I think the guys would say the same thing, was like, middle of the night, we've been paddling for close to 20 hours straight. We're all pretty tired. Luke's now puking. I had a stretch where I was puking during the day and really struggling in the heat. You know, you're not at 100%, I guess is the, the takeaway. And the boat circles back, but instead of staying in front of us, it comes all the way to us and cuts between us and we weren't that that far apart and this is a big catamaran and um you know you're half delirious and almost like cut into a couple of us i remember thinking like that's such a big boat and so powerful that and so fast that like i i couldn't get out of the way um so if it if it didn't turn uh, it would have been a dark moment um so ironically the, the sketchiest moment when i was the most scared was with the, the boat there for safety. Um, and after that, you know, we were, we made it pretty clear to them that like they should stay a mile or two in front of us at least. Cause we can, we can see it from really far away.
0: Crazy Thanks. that your, uh, your, your sketchiest moment, or your scariest moment is not the storm that you go through or anything like that, but it's your sport boat.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean that storm and the storm never left. We were paddling in that swell essentially the whole way until we got you know, to shallower water near Key West. So that just became what normal, that's what it was. You are just rocking the whole way.
2: Mm. I would, I would totally agree with Andy on the, on the, the fear of that. Cause that boat, you know, we could continuously see it, but it would rise and the full body of the boat would go below the waves when we fell into the troughs and you could see the mast and everything. But you know, when it was, when it was rolling up and down and coming closer, that was definitely a moment where you know, it felt like you couldn't decide which way to paddle hard and you might not be able to get out of the way if it did, did come. So, you know, tired, tired, frustrated people that, you know, the thing they should be supporting us got in the way. Um, that was a, that was a low point.
0: Scary stuff for sure. So Wyatt, how did you physically prepare for the trip?
2: Yeah. So this was actually my favorite part of the whole thing. We, we, Developed a really nerdy spreadsheet that tracked all of our exercises from push-ups to pull-ups to miles uh, paddled to meters rode, and it was it was pretty fun just keeping up and seeing when everybody would do big days or you know If they'd fall off for a day or two, we'd call each other out Um, And that was a really fun process, you know, it was just we would write down how many You know alcoholic beverages we drink and water ounces. We were drinking or intaking every day and it, it was by far the most, you know, minute way that I've tracked everything I've been doing for several months, and it was really enjoyable. Um, we all tried to get several longer paddles in. I did a hundred mile paddle down the Chattahoochee outside of Atlanta, and Andy did some big ones up in Seattle when he was training. Um, and so we we had a mix of both, you know, on the water uh, paddling, but most of it was done, you know, for me it was you know, before work, at lunch, and after work, when I was really putting in the time.
0: How'd you go about developing the plan?
2: We had, we set some goals for amount per week of all these exercises that we are doing, and then a big part of it was, again, by the, the, essentially our coach, Magda, who is training us with, you know, for food, but she's also done a ton of endurance, and so talking about, and when are we peaking, as far as mileage, um, and when are we kind of coming down to train or coming down to taper a little bit? And so we, we followed some guidelines on that, uh, as far as mileage per week or amount of meters we were rowing.
0: So at your peak, um, what, what did the training plan look like?
2: I might have to ask some, for some help from the boys. I don't remember. We would probably still have this spreadsheet actually. I think we were trying to do, you know, upward of 50 miles a week with some peaks, well over a hundred is that does
1: that sound right, boys? Yeah, I don't think I've looked at that spreadsheet since we stopped. It was fun, but at at the end, I was ready to close that that tab on my computer. <laughs> um, I, I remember it's a big mix. Like we definitely paddled, and we could have done more. But I think the thing to remember is all three of us were working full time, so there's a huge time limitation. So instead, like you get on a you know a rowing erg machine and try to crank out you know a bunch of bunch of miles that way or something. So, a mix of being on a rowing machine, general fitness, and actually, you know, time in a boat. It was a lot. I think that, like, maybe the better way to measure it was hours. And I remember just thinking about that thing all day and doing two or three hours exercising, like most days. Because just doing a kayaking workout takes a long time.
2: I had a fun uh, kind of connection. I, the access to, the river closest to me was hard, hard to get to, but there's some really big mansions along the side of it. And I just went up and introduced myself to one of these big houses and told them our story and asked him if I could store my kayak there. And I would come after work and just, you know, walk through his backyard, put in and then just paddle upstream. So it was kind of like an endless pool. I would, I would do laps essentially trying to go up, upstream as much as I could to get actual water practice. So I would do, you know, 10, 15 miles upstream and then turn around and come back.
0: So it sounds like those two to three hour workouts, the non-water days, it sounds like Concept2 rower and uh, and body weight workouts and then some weight workouts as well.
2: Yeah, I was doing a mix. uh, You know, I was probably doing four to five hours a week in the gym and then, you know, kind of a regimented push-up and pull-up workout at home.
0: So let's talk about the question our listeners want to know. How'd you go to the bathroom? 27 hours out there. Something's got to happen.
2: <laughs> so this is the first question that most people do ask. <laughs> um, and so to to urinate, you know, being being males, you know, we, we did try just arcing it out of the boat. But we also had little uh, essentially medical urine cups that we would pee into and dump out. And among the the three of us, I was the only one that actually had to go number two. And this consisted of awkwardly, if anybody's gotten, you know, open water, you know, mounting and dismounting of a kayak is never, is never the smoothest thing, uh, but something that we practiced ahead of time. And so I was the only one that needed to go to the bathroom. So essentially jumped in and, uh, Luke held onto my boat as I uh, performed what we, we call the wet exit, <laughs> crawled back in, tried not to make eye, eye contact with Luke while, while the deed was being done.
0: <laughs> but it was successful.
1: So.
0: It was successful, all right? All right, Andy. What gear did you use on the trip?
1: We're paddling current designs, seventeen foot uh, sea kayaks. We used a couple different paddles. I I had a Werner. I think Wyatt and Luke were using we had Sawyer, Sawyer paddles. paddles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, we've talked a bit about food. You know, we all tried different uh, different skirts. I think the bigger innovations we had were like. For water, we had big dromedaries, so, like, 10-liter, you know, like, hydration bladders and hoses so we could just, like, have those in between our legs or even behind the seat and just drink without having to fuss with a water bottle. Trying to remember some of the other things that I felt like we we really nailed. You know, nothing special for for life jackets or for clothing, you know, just just simple kayaking gear. Um, Luke or Wyatt, do you remember anything jumps out to you
3: so we uh put marine lights on the front and back of our kayaks and this helped the safety or support boat see us but also helped us see each other and tell kind of what direction we were facing and which direction we were going at night and i was surprised at how light it even stayed during the night it was kind of overcast or partly cloudy but there was a decent sized moon and we were able to I never felt like I got separated from the group or really lost sight of anyone.
0: And did you have a uh, like a, a deck-mounted compass, or did you use the support boat as your, your navigation aid?
1: We did it have support... compasses, but for the Go most ahead, part, Andy. we were using the boat. Okay. I think we also all had um, like deck bags that were really convenient for snacks, having them right there. So I think a lot of the game was like, for us simplifying the motions and knowing that we're going to be really tired and not not thinking 100%. So if we could keep, we had all of our food, you know, like prepackaged in little Ziplocs. So it's like, instead of fiddling with a lot of stuff, it was just right there. And it was like, oh, I'm going to eat, you know, some candy or some Cheez-Its or something. And trying to have that right in front of you and not have to move a lot was kind of what we were trying to plan.
0: The limit the thought process and just down to the things you absolutely need to do. Right. Exactly. Cool, um, Andy. You mentioned earlier uh, the ten liter dromedary bags uh, with water. How much water did you each go through on the trip?
1: <laughs> um, well, I'm about to get chastised by these two. Um, I think we we brought um, slightly slightly different. I think each of us brought somewhere between twenty two and twenty five liters, if I remember correctly. I didn't drink very much. I uh, swear to God, I thought I was consuming a lot of water. I have some notoriety around. Uh, forgetting to drink, I think I ended up using like six or seven liters the whole the whole way. Why and Luke probably did about twice that.
0: 27 hours, and that's not much water.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's if I were to do it again, which I doubt I ever will, um, I, that would be one thing that I, I would address. Another thing we did change in the boats, just remembering now, is we all added larger supportive backrests, just knowing that it would take us you know, we thought, give or take, 24 hours going in, and that was something that uh, we wanted more support higher up. So that was a small modification that, that helped a lot.
0: So the, I mentioned the 27 hours. Um, what? How much did you plan for, meaning that it took you 27? What did you actually think before you left it was going to take?
2: We all wagered on, on how long we thought it was going to be. This is this is just an assumption because Luke win, wins most of the bets being an engineer from Microsoft. But I think it was between... 21 and 30 hours were all of our guesses. Does that sound right?
1: Yeah, I probably bet less than that because I, I, I dream bigger than I can follow through. But um, yeah, that's true. We did bet. It was, hard, it was hard to estimate because we had the wind that was like sort of at our back at times, but also kind of a crosswind. We didn't know how much that would propel us versus fatigue us. And then one of the big plot twists was we were following a boat, but the boat, kind of missed one of the entryways to, I guess you would call it the reef of Key West and that added quite a bit of distance. So we were, we were estimating give or take 110 miles, 113 if you do it totally straight line and we ended up doing 125. So that added a few hours at the end.
3: As we came into Key West as well, I think the tide was coming out. So it was almost like we were at our most tired and paddling what felt like upstream.
0: That's a one-two punch right there. You're a little little off course, and now you got tide you're uh, paddling against. I'm going to ask a question for each of the three of you. Advice you might have for someone doing an extended open water trip. So I'll go with Andy first.
1: Yeah, I would say look deep into your soul and ask yourself why you're not on a river right now. <laughs> uh-huh. No, um, one piece of advice. Oh, man, there's so many. I think if it's a longer trip, just really factoring in the sun, you know, we haven't talked about it much here, but just like sunscreen and long sun shirts and hats, you know, a lot of, for me, a lot of my fatigue comes in that heat and humidity, you know, like hiking in and of itself isn't exhausting if you're just paddling at a, you know, longer expedition pace, but the sun just, it just would crush me, you know, in the middle of the day. So planning for that, if you're doing something like this, finding ways to like be exerting less in the middle of the day. I found it so much easier to paddle at night when it was cooler.
0: Luke, how about you? One piece of advice that you'd have for someone planning a, an open water expedition?
3: I think really dialing in your food and water and your gear to where it is easy and simple is huge and can make a huge difference. And I think it was something that I struggled
0: with on this trip. So Wyatt, other than having a really nerdy spreadsheet, which I love nerdy spreadsheets, um, what's your one piece of advice?
2: I would do a similar length paddle that is non-open ocean. Uh, the one I did really helped me get my mind around how my body fluctuates and how my mind fluctuates throughout a twenty, you know, seven-hour period. And so that, that was my biggest leap. The second time we tried this was, you know, I did a full day on the water in my boat just to know how I would feel in the boat, know how my arms would start to feel, and then how long they could kind of persist. And so that was, that was the biggest kind of mental jump that I made of understanding how my mindset would just go to pretty dark and how to get over those kind of, is this worth it moments. So I think doing, you know, there's a lot of debate on whether you should run a full marathon before you actually do the, the actual race. And for this, I don't think it needs to be at the same tempo or in dangerous open water. But I think putting in the, the amount of time you think it's going to take in a single stretch was really helpful for me.
0: So, uh, Andy, how could listeners um, reach you learn more information, uh, maybe even see more information about the trip?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think we could we could share our emails if that would be helpful. Uh, maybe in like the comment section of the pod. Um, if you'd like to see the film, um, it's on outside online, outside online. It's called The Crossing. Um, we could probably add that link in the comments too.
0: Absolutely. I'll That's put that in the show notes. Um, tell us a little bit about the movie.
1: Um, it was a journey creating it. Uh, super proud of how it ended up. <laughs> the fun thing about it there was a challenge as from the filmmaking perspective is that we have these amazing stories from four different refugees that have crossed the straits before us. We're trying to weave them all together. We're trying to show our story, but because the water was so rough and the boat was rocking, um, the catamaran, the support boat, even the crew was sick. So the filmmakers didn't do much shooting when, uh, the seas were the biggest. So that was kind of tough to, creatively show what we went through without having that much footage of it but super super proud when we finally got there and i think we had really good feedback people seeing our story and we're excited about using kayaking to kind of tap into something bigger than just three guys doing a trip
0: yeah like we were saying earlier i mean uh, that's yeah three guys doing a trip and you've got 125 miles of open water and it's it the story is much more about the experience that you had, and and the experience that other people had, uh, rather than the boat itself and the and the crossing itself, but um, it all ties together pretty cool.
1: Yeah, thanks.
0: One last question uh, that I have for you guys. This has been this has been great. I really appreciate taking the uh, you guys taking the opportunity and time out of your schedules to spend a little bit of time with me here today and tell our listeners a little bit more about the crossing. Um, but I have one last question, and I'm going to throw this one out to Luke. Um, Luke, this is one last question that I like to ask all of our guests on the show, and that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue?
3: So I'd like to nominate Aaron pruzan He's the owner of Rendezvous River Sports in Jackson and has done many first descents around the globe. He's also served on the board of American Whitewater and was heavily involved in getting the Snake River designated Wild and Scenic. Uh, He also founded the Jackson Hole Kayak Club, which is a nonprofit that gets kids involved in paddling and is one of the reasons I started paddling and got into kayaking. And all around, he's been and continues to be a steward for the paddling community.
0: Well, Aaron sounds like a cool guy and uh, made a a big difference for the paddling world. So I'll uh, connect with you guys offline and get contact information for Aaron, reach out to him and see if we can get him on the show sounds great thank you for having us you're welcome andy luke and ross or wyatt um, again thank you very much i really appreciate your time today um i have a great day
1: thank you so much thanks john
0: if you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler power to the paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds. And who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Well, there's certainly a bucket list trip, Um, quite an open water journey. They were a fun group to talk with, and I really encourage you to visit the show notes for this episode where we put a link to watch the video titled The Crossing. Uh, This short film does an excellent job of sharing the stories of those brave and determined people who went before them without any of the modern resources on this trip. It's a pretty powerful video, so definitely check it out. Next up is David Horkin. And David is going to join us from his home along the northwest coast of Ireland, and we're going to talk with David about the Skelligs on Ireland's west coast and crossing the Irish Sea at night. So thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue.